Nehemiah is the story of God keeping his promises in spite of our sin. It is the story of God working through his people for their flourishing both spiritually through ordering their lives around his word and physically through the restoration of structures to protect and provide for them. It is the story of the establishment of justice, the restoration of worship, and the declaration of God's mighty acts, the opposition to God's program, and the dependence of God's people in His power to effect change. Nehemiah offers us a sketch of what Jesus has done and continues to do through His church. He has fundamentally defeated the enemies that oppose and enslave God's people, so that now, through His continual presence and power by the Holy Spirit, we work to see God's kingdom expanded and His world transformed. Like Nehemiah, we work to renew a city. Amen. Uh, kids ages 3 to pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. Uh, the rest of you, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, we've got some on the back table we'd love to give you. Uh, but it's going to be good to have the text in front of you. It's always good to have the text in front of you when someone's up front saying that this is what God says, because... You want to know if he's lying or not, right? And I would rather you go to the Word than to my Word. So um, so we're in Nehemiah chapter 8 this morning. And we're in the home stretch of our fall series called Renewing the City, uh, obviously in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Some of you uh, are visiting with us this morning that we've been doing this for the last uh, seven weeks. This is the eighth week in it. And... Uh, Last week, we came into what I called then, and I, I called this morning, a hinge passage, which, which is to say that it, it connected the two themes of this book. This book is about the renewal of a city, and to see a city renewed, to see a city transformed, to see a city um, uh, restored to what God had meant it to be, it requires two things. It requires the, the renewal of structures and systems, and it requires the renewal of people. Right? Neither one by themselves is enough. It takes both. The Bible pr- boldly proclaims that apart from a reconciled relationship with God through Jesus, all of us are dead, and that systems, at their best, can prop us up, but they can't make us alive. Right? We need renewal. But how, do, how are people to be renewed? And that's what the rest of this book is going to deal with. As, as Nehemiah finished the work on the wall, he begins to turn uh, towards, uh, towards how to see people renewed, and, and in three ways particularly to see people renewed. The Word of God, the worship of God, and prayer to God. Word, worship, and prayer. This morning we begin with being renewed through the Word. So if you have your place In uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, if you'd stand, that's our habit here in honor of God's word. And actually, you're going to see why we do that in this very passage. Uh, But we're going to be reading verses 1 to 12 in chapter 8. This is God's word to us. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. 
And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women, those who could understand, and all, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this very purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema, and Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right, and Pedaiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Melisham on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleriah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book of the law clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, all said to the people, this, is, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then they said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Father, we're here, we're gathered here. I know some of us are in here for different reasons, but right now we're going to proclaim as one people that we are here to be renewed by your word. Whether we are uh, longtime Christians, whether we are brand new Christians, whether we're not Christians, we're all here in this place and we need to hear from your word. And so we ask that you would, by your spirit, impress your word, your gospel upon us, that we would go from here changed people and let that change be for our flourishing, not for our hardening. God, would you, would you bless this time? Let Christ and what he has done come to the fore and the one who speaks fall to the wayside because you alone hold the words of eternal life, Lord. So we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. Right now, our, the folks who are on our worship reading team are going, please, please, never assign us Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 to 12, right? Yes, they are. All right, let's jump right in this morning because there's a lot uh, to get to. Let me just kind of set the stage for what we see here and what we're going to talk about. If you've been here, you know that the major thing that Nehemiah uh, came in and got to work on was the wall, right? And we heard last week that the wall around the city is finished. It's finally been completed, and it's done just in time for a major Jewish festival. That Jewish festival, there, there, there's four main Jewish festivals. The one that's about to take place is the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Um, it was, probably a better way to put it is the, the Feast of Camping <laughs> or Tents. I mean, I mean, it's something like that. We don't have a ton of time to go into it. But needless to say, w- what it does is this, this festival commemorates Israel's wandering in the wilderness. They came out of, ex- they came out of Exodus uh, from Egypt, and, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And, and this was meant to commemorate that and meant to be a time in which God's people would lean into the fact that there was coming a day when God would take them from their great wandering that they're still in, that we are still in, and restore us to the land that we were made for, a world set to rights. 
And this, what we see here, is the opening convocation of that festival. And in verse 1, where it says that all the people were gathered, the end of chapter 7 tells us that all of the people in the city amounted to about 50,000 people. Now, that's a worship service, right? When you, have to, when you have to rent out, like, a football stadium, that is a worship service. And that's about what's going on here. 50,000 people are gathered, and this dude named Ezra stands up. Now, this is our first mention of this guy Ezra in this book, but he is, the, the book Ezra is taken from his name. It's the same guy, right? So Ezra had actually come to Jerusalem about 15 years before Nehemiah. He was pivotal in getting the temple rebuilt, He's a, he's a priest, he's a scribe, um, which, which is another way of saying like he's a, he's a Bible scholar who also preaches, okay? So th- this is what he does. Um, and so all the people gather, and Ezra stands on a raised podium constructed for this very purpose, and he begins to read God's word. He begins to read the Bible, specifically the first five books of the Bible. And this is the first step to renewal of these people. It is hearing from God's word. So what we're going to do this morning, and there's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful, we're going to look at this uh, particularly being renewed by God's word in three ways using this passage. We're going to look at what, what the word is, then we're going to jump around a little bit and talk about what it does, and then finally we're going to look at how we respond via how these folks respond, okay? What it is, God's word, the Bible, what it is, what it does, and how we respond, okay? All right, let's get started. Let's start with what it is. Look at verse 1. It says this, they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Now, stop there. This is a great little scripture, and it tells us so much. Now, just to make sure that we're on the same page, uh, I mentioned this a second ago, but when he says the book of the law, he's talking about the first five books of our Bibles. If you open your Bibles, you go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. First five books. The book of the law. Okay? That That is the book of the law. And, and it is an interesting way of talking about it, because if you've ever read the first five books, and, and some of you in this room have started the whole read through the Bible thing in a year, right? And you're doing pretty good till you get to Leviticus. But you, you read through Genesis, you read through Exodus, you're like, there's not a ton of law there, is there? It's a lot of stories. Uh, but that's really what this is. You see, we hear law and we think rules, But most of it is a story. It tells the story of God. It tells the story of his world. It tells the story of his people. And it tells the story of his work in the world. That's what the Bible does. And and so more on that in a second. What I want to focus on right here is how it is described. It's described as the law that the Lord had commanded. Okay, this is great. Because on the one hand, this tells us that the Bible is the word of God. Okay? Now, this is important, so listen close if you can. Christians believe, and the Bible teaches about itself, in fact, that it is the very Word of God. It means, first and foremost, we are to understand the Bible as written by God. Now, what that doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that it suddenly dropped out of heaven, right? Suddenly you're driving along one day and poof, the Bible drops down, and you have to figure out what to do with that. Nor does it mean that God kind of transcribed it via lightning, like writing out the words. Uh, But it does mean that we understand it to be the very words of God. Now, Here's what I didn't say that I want to make sure we get. What I didn't say is that the Bible um, contains the Word of God. Nor did I say that the Bible um, uh, kind of becomes the Word of God when we read it. Right? 
Because if the Bible contains the Word of God, that means we still have to search through it to find it. And if it becomes the Word of God when we read it, then that means it really depends on us. The Bible is God's Word, totally apart from our experience of it or our belief in it. So it doesn't really matter this morning what you think about the Bible. What it claims for itself is that it is God's Word. Okay? And it does so before you ever pick it up, before you ever read it, it is that. It is true because God is true. It is authoritative, which means that it is the standard by which uh, Christians make their judgments. And it is sufficient. And what I mean by that, so, so it's true, it's authoritative, it's what we govern our lives by, and it's sufficient, which means that uh, we don't need to hear any other words from God. Everything we need for life and godliness, everything we need for our faith is contained in this, this book. Uh, you don't need um, you know, anyone to tell you, well, I've got the word of God for you today. Uh, unless they're handing you the Bible, because for some reason you don't have yours with you. Okay. Now, what is most important for us today is simply the aspect that the Bible is God speaking. Why do I say that? You're like, Rick, why did you pick that? Why not something else? Because of this. Our culture seems to believe, I think all of us, if, if you're anything like me, I know I do, so my guess is that all of us, to some extent, uh, view God as somehow distant. That he's there for us to search for, there for us to discover. He's there for us to try and get our hands around. But God is not out there for us to search or discover. God has spoken. In fact, he's the one who took the initiative with us to speak. In other words, we are not blind people trying to, trying to describe an elephant as if the object of our discovery is inert and silent. The object for us is a subject. He's a subject, a person, and that person has spoken to us in this book. Secondly, though, verse 1 also notes that these are the words of people. Did you notice that? Because it says, this is the book of the law of Moses, which God commanded. Now, I think most popular literature on the Bible you read wants to force us into one camp or another. In other words, we either have the words of people and all the problems that come with that, or we have the word of God that has nothing to do with people. But what they want to say is you can't have it both ways. But the thing is, that is exactly how the Bible describes itself, which means that what we're talking about here is a word in theological language called inspiration. Now, when you and I think of inspiration, what we think is that kind of sudden eureka moment that we have, like, oh, got it. And you're figuring out a problem, like, oh, it came to me. Or you forget that person's name, and, like, you forget thinking about it later, you're, you're making dinner, and all of a sudden, boom, it comes to you. That, that's inspiration. Not, not exactly, okay? The concept in the Bible means God breathing out his word through people. God breathing out his word through people. Now, does that mean that God is, is like speaking and someone like Moses or Luke or Paul is like writing it down? Like they're bup, 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 and they're writing it down. Well, sometimes, but more often than not, more often than not, what we mean is that God is so ordering someone's life. See, the vision that says that God is somehow distant means that what he's going to do is he's going to speak in moments and someone's going to write it down and think, okay, all right, like it's a phone conversation. But the, the vision of the Bible, uh, the vision of God that the Bible has is that he is intimately involved in all of our lives. Intimately in, engaged in everything. That everything spins and is, and is ordered by him. And so what we mean by inspiration is that God is so ordering someone's life that the words they are writing are perfectly the words that God intends. 
such that it is both God's word and theirs at the same time. And God's people recognize it as such. And this is important that we hold these things together because God, uh, God does not flatten out the personalities of those who write it. Listen, the Bible is made up of 66 books written over close to 2,000 years by various authors and editors, uh, multiple different people. Some of it is poetry. Some of it is stories. Some of it is personal letters to, to friends. Some of it is proverbs. Some of it is law. Some of it's crazy dreams and visions that barely any of us can kind of get our hands around. Some of it is full of praise and joy, and some of it is sad and frustrated. And it is written by people who, through the power and inspiration of God, wrote perfectly true words in those moments. But even in saying this, even as I say this, this word of God, word of people, we need to place the emphasis on God, because God is the one who initiates God spoke. The Bible is his idea. It's not ours. Okay? The Bible is not someone's reflection on things God did. It's God's authoritative revelation of himself. So that's what the word of God is. But now I want to take a brief detour kind of around the, the Bible a little bit just to talk about what it does. And this is important because we're talking about the word of God as a means by which God renews us. Right? And, that, and, and so, frankly, if, if we don't cover this, if we don't talk about what the Word does, we're going to have a hard time getting at why the people that we see in Nehemiah respond the way they do. It's kind of, I don't know if you noticed, there's some weird response going on there. There's, there's some, some worship going on, there's some tears and weeping, and then there's like a part, like, what is going on? Well, here's why. It's because of what the Word does. The first thing that God's Word does is it reveals God. If you want to turn there and you have your Bible, great. If not, you can look there later. Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7 says this. The Lord descended in the cloud. Let me, let me set this up. So Moses is on the mountain, he's, and he's hearing from God, and he's about to take a renewed um, Ten Commandments down to the people. And, and he says, show me your glory. And God hides him in the cleft of the rock, and then he descends and he does this. The Lord descended in the cloud, and he stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. He's telling him his name. This is what I'm about. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Okay, stop there. This passage does it specifically. The Bible does it as a whole, but you gotta, I, can't, I can't preach on the whole Bible, right? So i gotta, I got to pick something. So we pick this. It reveals who God is. And this is important, again, because God has not left us in the dark. Our culture seems to assume that God is both beyond knowledge and not much interested in being known, right? Which is why we have all the different talk of all these different perspectives on God and how every religion kind of gets a slice. But the Bible rejects that. God wants to be known. God desires to be known, And he is known authoritatively through his word. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. You cannot truly know a person unless they reveal themselves to you, right? 
mean, you know, this you're in relationship with people. You can know a lot about a person. You can watch um, what they do. You know, if you're you know, really engaged with them, you can watch even down to like how they get up in the morning, wh- what order they put their clothes on, like what they brush their teeth with, like all these things. But to know a person, to know them, they have to speak. They have to reveal themselves. And God has done that. In this book, the Bible, God is revealed as a person. A person who created all things. Who delights in his creation. Who spoke the universe into existence and holds it there by that same word. He controls all things. From the spinning of galaxies to the spinning of electrons and everything in between. This word reveals God as relational, as existing from all eternity, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect, loving communion. One God in three persons. It reveals God as faithful and loving and merciful and true. It, It reveals Him as knowing everything, as seeing everything, and as perfectly just. The Word of God is God's authoritative self revelation. He tells us what he is like. We don't have to guess. We don't have to fall back on our opinions. We don't have to pretend that God to me is God. God to me is something I made up. God is revealed in his Bible, in his book. He is who he says he is. So the word reveals God, but it also reveals us. Let me read from the New Testament book of Romans, uh, chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, and then verse 23. Paul, who wrote this, uh, was uh, one of the earliest Christians. Before he was a Christian, he was a violent persecutor of Christians. And he writes this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world held held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, and then in verse 23 he says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, if, the, if the, all the Bible did was reveal God, we could kind of be comfortable in our little self-delusions. But the Bible doesn't allow that. It, the, it tells about God, but it also tells about us. The, the Bible speaks about what humanity, both what humanity was meant to be, Right? What we were meant to be like, that's what that, those, all those rules are really about. The, the do not murder, do, do not uh, commit adultery, do not lie, like all of these things are about what we were meant to be. We were meant to be those who don't lie or, or murder or covet what others have or lust after other people. But, but as we see here in, in Romans, it is also very clear that you and I are not what we were meant to be, are we? And this is crucial that we get this. The Bible reveals a God who is holy. A God who is worthy of worship and praise and thanks and obedience. And at the same time, it reveals that none of us, none of us do that. And I don't care whether you've been growing up going to church and you've been, you've been in the church from like your second day of birth or whether you just walked in here today. None of us do that. We have all turned away from God. Like Paul says here, all of us have sinned. Not some of us, not a few of us, all of us. There is a God who is perfectly just, who we have betrayed. 
And the Bible is a long, tragic story of how we continually do that. We are all broken, and we all must give an account to the God who will by no means, as he says about himself, by no means clear the guilty. And if we are left there, if we're left with just God revealing himself, we have happy land of delusions. Because he's pretty good, but so am I. If we're left where, I, where we just stopped, then we're done. We're left in despair. But we aren't, because the word of God reveals who God is, it reveals who we are, and it also reveals God's rescue plan. Because in some sense, some of these things can be known apart from the Bible, right? I mean, even the Bible itself says that that the things of God, that he is creator, that he is majestic, that he is all of these things can be known from creation itself. That kind of sense of transcendence that you feel when when struck with something of just utmost beauty, those kind of things. The Bible itself says that we can know God as creator and that we should worship him just from creation itself. And in some sense, I would argue all of us know that we're broken. Even the most prideful of us. Because really, in, in many ways, pride is simply a cloak that we wear to keep people from seeing our inadequacies. We figure if we, can, if we can be arrogant enough, they'll believe it, and maybe we will too. Because we know. We have that deep sense of insecurity, and that's where that comes from. That sense of shame that we try to cover or make up for. But So those things can kind of be gotten apart from the Word. I'm not saying perfectly, but kind of gotten. But, but this rescue plan, that is impossible to get. Because it is, it is not the way we would ever imagine it. It is not the way we would ever imagine it should happen. Okay? So let me read quickly from John chapter 3, verse 17. Okay, let's be frank. John 3, 16, the verse right before that, is like the most famous verse in the Bible. Like many of you, maybe if you're not even Christians, you probably, you've at least seen the sign. Right? Football game. I still don't know why they do that. But they're holding up the sign. They really think somebody's going to come talk to them about that? I'm holding up this sign. Come talk to me about it. I don't know. Anyway, so John 3.17 is a big deal. Okay? And here it is. For God did not send his son, that's Jesus, into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. All right. Now, I say this a lot. I say it a lot, right, that, that Christianity isn't really about what you do to get to God. I say that all the time. Hopefully we're getting that. That Christianity is not ultimately about what you do to get back to God. That Christianity ultimately is about what God did to get to you. And that's what this verse is about. You see, it is in the work of Jesus that God's rescue is revealed to us. It isn't as if it was kind of a a new idea that Jesus came on the scene. God's like, oh, okay, I know what I'll do now. Like, God actually promised it right there in the beginning. Right after humanity first sinned, God promises to rescue us. He promises to deal with our sin. And the whole Bible is, in another sense, as it is a tragic story of our continual betrayal of God, at the same time as it it is a hopeful story of God's promise, fulfilling that promise to come and and to deal with our problem. And it is through Jesus that that is brought to fruition. God's word reveals himself. He reveals himself, as I've said a couple times, as perfectly just. Which means he cannot wink at our sin. He must judge it. We are in the wrong, and that cannot be ignored without God no longer being just. But God is also revealed, as we, as we heard in Exodus, as loving and merciful and gracious, which means that he forgives. But how? How can he do both? In this strange way that we would have never expected, the answer is Jesus. 
Because Jesus lives perfectly. He lives perfectly without sin and then dies in the place of sinners like you and me. You see, it's on, it's on the cross. It's the cross is the place in which God's justice and mercy kiss, where they meet. God can be merciful to betrayers like you and me because His justice was poured out on Jesus in our place. See, the Word of God reveals Jesus as God's answer for our sin. His only answer. His only answer. There's nowhere else you can look. It is through faith in Him that we are rescued from from the problem our sin created. And that is only revealed to us by His Word. So God's word is, it, 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 or what it does is it reveals God to us. It reveals ourself to us, or ourselves to us, and it reveals God's rescue. That's what it is and what it does. Now let's look at how we respond. Back in Nehemiah, okay? Look in verses 6 to 8. Ezra begins reading, and we are told that there are Levites, that, that's priests, uh, Think preachers who are also butchers. Like, that's kind of the thing. They, they do meat and they preach. Okay, so they are Levites who are preaching stationed around the 50,000 people. They are, as Ezra reads the word, they are explaining what it means. Which should give us hope, right? That when we read the Bible that every once in a while, we might need someone to help us understand it. Because it's like, I don't get it. And, you know, we're all in that boat. Okay, so... They're stationed around the people, and they begin explaining the law to them. And the first thing we see them do is worship, right? Verse 6. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. All the people answered, Amen, Amen. Lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is perfect. Because when we see who God is, when we see God for who He is, and not who we make Him to be, but who He is, we should be driven to worship. You see, we tend to paint a picture of God that's basically like an exaggerated version of us, don't we? He kind of has as much patience as we do. He has as much love as we do. He's just bigger. He can do bigger things like Hercules, right? He's like us, but stronger. He's not. He is holy. All of creation tells the glory of God. And when we see him for who he is, we are drawn to praise him. We are drawn to give him the praise that he is due. And one of the reasons that we don't is that we often don't see him for who he is. We take God and we place ourselves above him and then we begin to judge him. God, how do you line up to my definition of fairness? How do you line up to my definition of love? How do you line up with my definition of who a good, perfect, loving God should be? And we judge him by it. We want him to meet our standard. But every time in the scriptures we see someone even come close to seeing God, they fall on their faces. There's this prophet by the name of Isaiah, and he has a big book written after him. And in Isaiah chapter 6, he doesn't see God. He sees the train of his robe. It's like God shows up and all he sees is the, the hem of his jacket. And the dude's like, I'm done. I can't take this. He's too holy for me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Which is amazing because he's a prophet, right? He makes his living by talking. Anytime we see someone come close to God, they fall on their face. He is God. And we were made, created, to worship him alone. So the first response is worship. The second response we have to the word of God is conviction. Look at verse 9. It says this. 
This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why? Why would you weep? The reason is that you're seeing who you are. The weeping that we see here is because of grief. God's word reveals us as sinners. We want to pretend that we're not. And I know, look, look, I'm not saying anything you don't already know. You, you know you do. I do, right? We want to pretend that we're not, or at the very least, we are, in theory, sinners. We're, the, we're sinners in the abstract. God's word reveals us as sinners. It is honest about us. What we want to do, all of us want to do this. We want to pick and choose which of those laws that God says, this is what humanity was made to be like. We want to go... Yeah, I like this one. I don't like this one. So I'm going to focus on this one, and you're going to be okay with that. And actually, I'm going to focus on this one, but it, it says up here, it says no lying, or it says uh, no uh, committing adultery. Okay, I, I, I got that. But when Jesus says, yeah, but what that actually means is no lusting after other people, we go, oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to bring that standard down here so I can meet it. We take God's word, we pick and choose from it, and we bring it down. And, and then we, we point and we judge other people who don't agree with our particular emphases, right? So if your emphasis is like uh, traditional morality, traditional morality like don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. And then you have uh, more, our, our more progressive contemporary morality that's, more, that's, less about, um, that's, that's less about sex and substances and more about economics and environment, Right? It's not that we've given up on morality. It's not our culture is not amoral. Just switch its morality. Change the emphasis. And then we point back and forth at each other. You're immoral. No, 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 you're immoral. And all of it is because we don't actually want to look at what God's law says to us. We want to pick and choose which aspects of God's law is important and how far we have to follow it, but we can't See, friends, we are broken. When we come to a word that tells us of the perfections of God, what we find in it is a mirror that reflects back our imperfections. It's like being filmed in 1080p, right? That's why all those dudes on TV now have like five inches of makeup on. Because all it does is reveal your imperfections. The word of God tells us the truth about us that we don't want to be told. And here, God's word is being preached, and people are being convicted. They're seeing their sin. They're seeing their need for a Savior, seeing that they have betrayed this holy God, this perfect judge, this loving Father, who has only ever sought their good. And the last response, so the first is worship. The second that we see is conviction. The last is celebration. Look down at verses 10 to 12. So they're in the midst of reading. Ezra's in the midst of reading. They're in the midst of preaching. And and everyone starts weeping. And all of a sudden they're like, what are you doing? Why are you weeping? What what is this weeping that you got? They're like, guys, this isn't a time for weeping. This is a time for a party. You see, if the law simply stopped with our inadequacy, then yes, weeping is called for. Because like I said, we're done. We're done. But it doesn't. 
Even in the Old Testament, the promise is given over and over and over again. God's saying, I am going to fix this. I am going to redeem. I'm going to restore you, to rescue you. So this, this celebration that we see is the response of the gospel. It's as if all of a sudden people are remembered what that Feast of Tabernacles is all about. Yes, it's, it's not. It, we, we've heard the law. We see how far we've fallen short from it. But that festival was set up after God's people were rescued. After they were drawn out of their slavery. It's God saying, I know who you are. I know how broken you are. I, and I am that holy. And I've rescued you. And so they respond, lastly, with celebration. And we stink at this. We stink at this. You know it and I know it. Like, every Christian tradition generally has one, they're good at one of these. Right? The liturgical tradition tends to be very good at, at drawing you to highlighting God's transcendence and power and majesty and drawing you into worship. You cannot go, and I dare you, you cannot go into a cathedral, like a true cathedral, and enter that place without thinking to yourself, there is a God in heaven and I should be worshiping him right now. Even the architecture is meant to draw your eyes heavenward. Like everything is meant to do, the liturgical traditions get that. Reformed traditions, like ours, focus on conviction, right? Because we are so dogged, and rightly so, about the primacy of grace. That God's grace is first. And so what do we do? We hammer the fact that you and I are broken. You're like, I know, right, Rick? You say this constantly. I know. It's just part of the family. It's what we do, okay? So this is what we do. We know we are sinners, and we continually return to that theme. More charismatic traditions... They celebrate. Now, you may not even know what you're celebrating. I mean, at times it's like, I don't even know what I'm doing, but it's a party, bro. I'm on. Let's, let's go. Woo! It's great. The point is this. Worship with no conviction is half-hearted. Conviction without worship is self-centered and prideful. Celebration without conviction or worship is both shallow and baseless. And conviction without celebration, listen to me, Presbyterians, conviction without celebration is a denial of the gospel. Listen to me, Holy Cross. God's word is clear. God is holy. And you and I are sinners. God's word is also clear. If you are trusting in Jesus, your sin has been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. That it is gone. That it is gone. You aren't just forgiven. Forgiven means you get a pass. You should get out a hell free card. No, you're not for, just forgiven, but adopted. Adopted into his family. Set apart and made new all in Christ. God isn't waiting to squish you in your sin if you're in Jesus. This holy, holy, holy God whose justice is perfect is fully satisfied in the finished work of Christ. Now friends, if that doesn't make you celebrate, you either think way too highly of yourself, too little of God, or too little of the work of Christ. Either too highly of yourself, I really wasn't that bad in the first place, so thank you Jesus, but I don't really need it. Too little of God. He's not really that good in the first place. We're not that distant, actually, you and me. I just can't do the whole 
turning water into wine thing. Or Jesus' work wasn't that, wasn't that good. I really just needed a hand up, Jesus. I just needed that little space. Because I'm pretty darn good. Or maybe it's all three of them. But listen to this. It's a line from a hymn that we sing, I think says it perfectly. This is what God's word reveals about us, friends. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. Friends, as we are confronted by God's word, if if we want to seek renewal in our own lives, we need to be confronted by God's word. And as we're confronted by it, God's spirit opens our hearts to receive it and finally to be transformed by it. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we are desperately in need of you because we, some of us in this room, even if we've been Christians a long time, we want to, we want to play fast and loose with your word. We want to pretend that some of it's true and some of it's not. We want to, we want to pretend that we actually know it all. And, and so there's no, nothing more you can say to us. Others of us are not Christians and, and it's completely irrelevant to us. And so, and, and the rest of us are somewhere in between. We need you, Lord, to come and to renew us and to renew us by speaking to us. I pray that, Lord, as we come before your word, we would get a vision, a picture in our minds, though imperfect it will always be, of how holy and just and glorious you are. And at the same time, we would see ourselves for who we are, not who we want others to think we are. Not even who we want to think we are, but who we are. And then, between those two utterly disparate and dissociated pictures, we would see the Savior Jesus. That you would reveal these things to us because of your word, and that through that we would be led to worship, to conviction, and then finally to celebration. Lord, would you do this for your glory's sake and for our good, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.